a dystopian universe reality or society that you were like, eh, you know, this isn't too bad. I can live with this. I think it would come down to A, how much of a lack of empathy and sympathy you had, or B, how much you wouldn't mind being kept in the dark. Welcome to Speculative Sandbox, your audio playground for creative storytellers. My name is Vicki Lawn, and each episode, I and a guest will unpack a fiction trope with an eye for character development and narrative structures. Make sure to look for Speculative Sandbox on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, where you can join the conversation. Leave comments or questions, or let us know what other tropes we should cover. When the real world just doesn't cut it, let's get lost in a fictional one. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, a dystopia is an imaginary place or condition in which everything is as bad as possible. From George Orwell's 1984 and Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale, to young adult classics like Suzanne Collins' Hunger Games and Veronica Roth's Divergent, dystopian novels and movies have gripped society's attention, even though everything that happens in them sucks. But are they all so terrible? and are dystopian societies closer to us than we think. Guest writer Brad Alice joins me in a discussion of the dystopian trope, why we love to read and write them, and their small silver linings, if any. Welcome to the podcast, Brad. First, tell us a little bit about yourself and your interests in speculative fiction. Well, uh... Spent years, a decade, uh, in the media as a, as a reporter and radio host. Transitioned that into uh, local government, where a very wise and astute uh, boss of mine challenged me to find a passion project. So I returned uh, to writing a novel I had started 20 years before, and that has snowballed. I've now written two novels, and in about uh, 10 chapters into the third, I'm trying to find an agent. Uh, I write primarily detective and crime fiction, though do read quite a bit of speculative fiction and uh, starting with my obsession with comic books from about the age of six or seven through now where, yeah, movie, television, comics and, and, and the like. So uh, I th- I what, what are your thoughts on dystopian stories in particular? Well, I found it interesting because um, I find that I think the word dystopian dystopian has has been broadened. To me, it used to be a bleak future, but now if you really look at it, um, I think a lot of things that are and aren't dystopian uh, speculative fiction get branded as such. So I think it, it has broadened. But to me, you know, originally it was a bleak future, but you see everything from post-apocalyptic to totalitarian government, which are pretty much two opposite ends of the spectrum of, a, of the change in, in culture and society. Um, do you, do you a, think a lot of that reflects then what, how we view ourselves as a society now and what we consider to be scary compared to our form of government, for example? To me, it really, and I, see, I'm a child of the 80s, so we thought we were going to get nuked at any time. Um, so I think that's where you saw a lot of the post-apocalyptic stuff. But at the same time, you also had, and it's ironic that it's now rearing its ugly head again, you had the Soviet Union uh, and their authoritarian government. So I think for many of the creatives of my age and a little older, you know, we lived with that specter of both nuclear war, of, of you know, Three Mile Island, of Chernobyl, uh, destroying the environment. And we also lived with dictators, you know, like the Soviet Union, like Gaddafi. Um, so it was it was present on our, our news at all the time. And I think that naturally crept into uh, what we we're reading, both, like I said, it started with comic books as a kid, which became a more adult medium, um, and then into the sci-fi and fantasy that we read um, and still create to this day. So then why do you think people like to read and write dystopian stories? I think in many ways, it's a it can be a catharsis. Um, I think you think of the worst case scenario in, uh, in your fiction, and then it can... Th- make it so it's not as bad i think it's also a way of commenting on what you're seeing every day um again that fear of 
uh, nuclear war that we dealt with. Uh, and then you, you, you write about it and you think about it. Um, you can make subtle points about the things you're seeing around you. You know, you look at a movie, uh, maybe one of my favorite dystopian movies, They Live, John Carpenter's They Live, where no one knew they were living in a dystopian society. But it was a real mm -hmm. commentary on the role of the government, the role of the media. It's, it's very apt uh, today as well. But if, if you haven't seen the movie, uh, the main character it finds a box of sunglasses that allows him to see the fact that actually the world is being run by aliens. And uh, all the messaging and the advertising and on the news is actually subliminal messages that say obey or consume or, or procreate. And uh, so, again, it was a very, in some ways, ham-fisted commentary on um, consumer culture and, and, and the role of the government in that to placate us. But at the same time, it was a very entertaining movie that starred Rowdy Roddy mm -hmm. Piper, the former pro wrestler. Yeah, I, I, that's what I love about dystopian stories is they're meant to warn and kind of scare and explore things. But at the same time, we just love them. And I, I think a lot of it has to do with we're intrigued by what we think we don't know and to prepare for any possibility. But I also think that people who write or read dystopian stories tend to display a lot of compassion and empathy because it's a, it's a way of exploring something that you may not yourself experience, but seeing how the adverse effects of your environment can affect you and the people around you. Yeah, I think in, in, in many ways we look at other societies, other even other time frames and, and wonder how we would exist there. Um, you know, what would we do if we were in Ukraine today, for example? Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of that is, yeah, let's place ourselves in this bleak future, um, which might even be for some places a, a bleak present. And how would we react? Would we, you know, take the Ukraine? Would you be running toward the Polish border? Or would you hand your, your, your child off to grandma and grandpa and go to the front lines? And I don't think any of us, we, I think we think we know what we would do in that situation. But in reality, I don't think any of us know uh, or would be confronted. I know, again, at, speaking as of when I was a kid, the movie Red Dawn uh, came out, the original, not the remake with Thor. And, uh, you know, every kid in America thought, OK, when, when those Russians parachute into our playground, you know, we're running to Mount Lemon with our dad's shotgun when I think most of us would unfortunately wind up in the uh, re-education camps or, or just be running the everyday town for the Russians and the Cubans. But it, it's something that always yeah, made you think and consider, what would I do in this situation? You know, uh, what would I do? And, and I think, you know, as, as we have seen, I kind of have joked for years that it still sometimes feels like we're in the first 10 minutes of the dystopian movie where they show all the headlines and it's plague and bad leaders and war overseas and murder hornets. And, um, but, but yeah, would we be the character who is at the forefront of it knowing what's going on or because it's such a slow digestion of all these things, would we be that character who midway through the movie, the, the protagonist runs into our house for shelter and then we have to figure out, are we going with them on the adventure or are we calling the authorities? Dystopian stories are entertaining when it's not technically happening to you and it becomes a fun thought experiment. But I thought that too, when uh, growing up, I used to love reading these hypothetical scenarios and wondering what role would I play? And then the pandemic happened and I remember being in the thick of it. And you and I have similar roles in our day jobs where we're very much involved in public communication and news. And I remember thinking, I don't like being in a dystopian situation at all. This is really stressful. Well, I think the other thing that they they didn't tell us in our dystopian literature of the uh, the 80s and even the 90s is we have become such a fragmented society, um, primarily politically, although I think you can say religious, not religious, that when we saw the dystopian societies on, on television and comics, 90 95 percent of the population bought in one way or the other they were either all united against the aliens or they were all fooled by the megalomaniac uh, dictator uh, and what we've seen now is this such fragmenting of our society that everything that, that you know if you want to say all the dystopia is now half of them like it and half of them don't and you can almost not find anyone 
who crosses these lines. So, you know, when it came to COVID, half wore their mask, half would never wear a mask. That was tyranny. Uh, you know, when you look at, you know, whether you, you, you like the current president or the former president, it was 50-50 split. There was no one like, yeah, he's OK. <laughs> um, so I find that that was that was something I don't think many of the writers and I might be wrong. I, you know, I don't read enough of dystopian fiction. Maybe someone has that pegged down that they saw the slow, um, which I think was by design by our political parties, by outside forces to to split us and to fragment us into two very distinct uh, groups that are that are very much 50 50 or close to it whereas you know you look at uh, you know you look at something like animal farm and it was like the three leading you know the pigs leading and everyone else behind but here um i think uh it's a very interesting you see how fragmented we are and it'd be very interesting to go back and, and look at other literature and to see if anyone pegged that because it always seems like yeah either everyone was united or everyone was fooled so what would you think qualifies a society as dystopian by literary measures then? If you look at all the classics, you mentioned Animal Farm. 1984 is one that comes to my mind. What are your thoughts? It, it really seems like it's it's one of two extremes. And to really go on to the geeky deep end, uh, I played Dungeons and Dragons as a kid. And mm -hmm. you had the, the, the character um, alignments. You know, the the hero, the Superman was was what was called lawful good. And there are three kinds of evil, but there are really two kinds of evil. There is chaotic evil, which is basically no laws, no rules. You murder, you you rape, you pillage, you know, think berserkers and Vikings. And and then there was what was actually the worst, which was lawful evil. And oh, uh, and you, you're justified in your evil. Versus. Or you were so tightly con uh, regimented in your evil. And ironically enough, if you picked up the books and with the monsters, there was a section on the devils. Not a devil, but there was, you know, every version of, of the Judeo-Christian devil had its own different character. So there was Asmodeus and there was uh, Lucifer and they were all lawful evil. So in, in many ways, when you look at dystopia, you've really got two. You've got the authoritarian regime. You've got your, you know, Fahrenheit 451, you, your animal farm, your uh, V for Vendetta. And then you have the opposite, which is the complete breakdown of society. Your um, zombie, stand, zombie apocalypse, <laughs> post-apocalyptic. Um, and those seem to be, yeah, really the, the two main uh, types that we see in, in literature. It's either the complete breakdown of society or the ultra regimented. And I, and the irony is in the ultra regimented, you have no freedom or little or no freedom. And in the other one, you have complete freedom, which is actually what causes all the problems. So when you talk about that regimented authoritarian, authoritarian dystopian, that, that brings 1984 to me. Definitely. Have you read that one yet, by the way? I have not read 1984. Um, I, I'm ashamed to enough. say I grew up not reading it either until I finally was like, I need to read this book just to get my research done. And it's remarkable how much of it has been. Um, I can see how people who are fearful of this sort of future regimented dystopia uh, is very is, is alerted to a lot of the things that we're having right now in technological advancements, such as having screens that watch you and listen to you in your living room. Um, but yeah, it's it's basically a high surveillance state. And um, you are subjected to conditioning throughout your every day. Um, they watch everything that you do. And um, they, they condition you against other countries, other races through the use of, I'm trying to remember, think of what the term is. It's when they make you watch something. It's almost like a clockwork orange where you watch something and then they associate terrible things with whatever you've watched. So then you have physical reactions to it and that's what these people have to go through um every week it's called the two minutes hate i think that's every day where it's torture conditioning um to make people feel really unpleasant about their enemy whatever this enemy is and what's so scary about 1984 is that as events change they go back and they rewrite history and the main character's main job is to go back and start erasing headlines rewriting headlines and then destroying the original and when you talk about information control I, it actually makes me thankful that you can't edit a twitter post yeah you know it, it, 
knowing a lot about 1984, and I always joke that I went to a TUSD high school, so I never read many of the classics. Although, ironically enough, um, we read The Trial by Kafka, uh, which is a dystopian future where you are you are under trial for something that they won't tell you what you did or how to defend yourself in an omnipresent jury. Um, but for the most part, yeah, we read a lot of uh, junk I would almost say literature, you know, except for 900 Steinbeck novels. But in, in middle school, we were exposed to not only Animal Farm, but uh, at least selected chapters of Fahrenheit 451. But you mentioned 1984, and it's very interesting is a lot of it was a prediction of the future. But at the same time, it was it was taking things from from the recent past. And you think about the uh, conditioning to hate your enemy. And, and that comes right out of World War One and World War Two propaganda where the you know the japanese were made to look monstrous you know literally you know yellow devils and you look at the way the germans were were they were these giant ogres and you know we have continued to see that in the jim crow south where we saw how how blacks were were portrayed and unfortunately has even crept into until more modern fiction where all your villains, you know, all your, all, all your drug dealers are black or Mexican or Hispanic or all your terrorists for a while were, were always Arab. And um, I think luckily, I think our, our fiction has gotten away from those stereotypes, at least a little bit. Uh, but we still see that in political rhetoric, um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, painting border crossers as, as rapists and, and, and murderers or, um, the opposite painting, you know, we're having people who won't eat at a Russian uh, restaurant in New York city, even though those people left Russia uh, because we're going to be end up painting them as, as complete villains, even though, you know, the Russian government, I would say is the villain in the Ukraine scenario, but not necessarily the Russian people. So in many ways, yes, it was a predict trying to predict uh, the future. And I think accurate in many ways, but it's also drawing on the recent past. And I think that when done well, and, and if you look at, uh, you know, dystopian kind of comes into two categories. It can be throwaway junk fun fiction, um, you know, zombie movies and things, which also always did have a slight um, political bent, you know, whether it was consumerism or, or, or government control. Or you have the very highbrow dystopian like, you know, Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit 451, like 1984, like. Uh, a lot of Kafka's stuff. So it's very interesting that a genre can be either complete sci-fi fantasy, uh, the dystopia, or a very good commentary uh, on society, or when done really well, uh, which I think you know, both speculative fiction, obviously, and, and science fiction to a, a degree, uh, do it both ways, where it's very entertaining and you think you're reading for lack of, you know, watching a popcorn movie, but in reality, it is a subtle uh, and sometimes effective uh, commentary on society. It seems like what we're really scared of is each other and the darkest side of human nature. One thing that I always find remarkable growing up is I'd always wonder why certain people were so worried about certain actions um, from other people, because it wouldn't dawn on me to be mean or authoritative. But there, there's a part of human nature that maybe some people are more in tune to or knowledgeable of, have been victim to, and are always aware, whether it's coming from like within and they see it reflected in others, or they have had to experience it before and they don't want to experience it again. Yeah, you know, and I, th I think it's interesting when you, you mention, I th and I think we, we, we do see, and again, going back to, to the literature and to the movies and the comic books, we see people who are either conditioned uh, to become authoritarian. I'm going to use authoritarian, um, although I guess you could go with the chaotic. Or conditions make them that way. And yeah. again, there's still, you know, you look at uh, uh, a Lord of the Flies, um, uh, Battle Royal, which is uh, a, a Japanese, basically that, that became it's the it's the it's the story that really spawned the Hunger Games. You look at even look at The Walking Dead, where you can kind of go, you can go one of two ways. You, you know, you can become the the the, the bad guys, the ones who are, are raping and pillaging and 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 betraying. Or, uh, but that's, I think, can being you know, in many ways, 
reacting to where in, in others and you look at you know whether it's 1984 or animal farm those that's conditioning that is finding those you can you can bend to your will and uh and, and make think your way and again in most of these cases the heroes is the one who either has the awakening or never gets the conditioning or the ones who overcome those elements to remain at least as pure as possible. You know, you look at something like the zombie movies at some point, yes, they are there. There's a swath of destruction. Um, but, but we see it as being justified destruction because whether they're monstrous zombies or they're the, the, the bad humans. Um, but, but yeah, that's where in, in these, in these novels and these movies, the hero is usually the one who overcomes this version of society to remain what we, what we think is as pure or pure enough. Can you think of an example of one character that you think is a really good example? Of, you know, if you look at it, um, I think you could, if you want to go with like the Hunger Games, Katniss's character never fully buys it. You know, she's given the ability to fully buy in to the capital, um, both in surviving the uh, the Hunger Games. Again. She could have been become a, a pawn, but does not. You know, you look at The Walking Dead and, and and Rick's character, who who does some very dark things, but at the end of the day, he is he is still uh, the hero. You even look at uh, Ready Player One, which is a book you actually turned me on, and and you know the the hero um, doesn't sell out to the corporation. He you know when he does win, he doesn't pocket the money. He opens the oasis for everyone. Um, so I think in most of these, yeah, we see the characters who remain as pure as they can, even if sometimes to to remain pure, they have to, again, do dark things. Does, you know, Rick had to kill uh, bad people um, to, to keep his family safe from zombies and from those bad people. OK, so now that we've talked about dystopian societies, how much they suck, <laughs> how they affect story structure as far as characters are then uh, focusing on trying to break free of those, whether they're authoritative or chaotic situations. Let's turn this concept on its head a little bit and talk about, now that we know that dystopian realities are a reflection of real life, it's not just looking forward, it's also looking back. Therefore, are we always in some sort of state of dystopia? We, we can talk about that as well. But what I want to know is, is there a dystopian universe reality or society that you were like, eh, you know, this isn't too bad. I can live with this. I think it would come down to a, how much of a lack of empathy and sympathy you had or B how much you wouldn't mind being kept in the dark. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking and I, and I made my list of all of these, uh, you know, the ones that I, I really liked. And you look at something like Snowpiercer, uh, the movie. I've never seen the television. But in the movie, if you lived in the front of the train, things aren't so bad. Mm -hmm. Can you ignore the people in the back of the train? And I think most of us are just like, I couldn't. Well, when was the last time you went down to uh, the, the homeless camp? Or when was the last time you donated something to a third world country? Uh, right. You know, in many ways, the train and Snowpiercer is a shrunken version of our, our entire society. Uh, I use, you know, and they live... Would you be happy being perfectly ignorant um, to what the the aliens are doing? You know, most of the people were living fine lives. You know, they were. And I think many people would argue if you watch the movie now, it's kind of ironic with the whole fake news and consumerism and, mm -hmm. <laughs> and things like that. Many would argue we're all happily ignorant as we stare at our cell phones and we record our podcast on our laptops and, um, you know. Uh, but would you be perfectly content, you know, being that person or, or in a lot of them? I always joke that, you know, even in Ready Player One, we saw the people who live in the stacks. They're poor. Well, what about the rest of the people? What about the guy? You know, what about the you know, they live in Columbus? Well, you and I having worked in local government, how would you like to be the communications department for Columbus, Ohio? Not knowing that everyone lives in the stacks or not mm -hmm. knowing. So I think there is a blissful ignorance in many of these uh, societies it's like uh, being in the capital for hunger games and you get yeah. to wear your makeup and your hair and you're like entertained by all these poor children well because and, it's easier to be ignorant at that well, stage remember they tell them that they do this so there'll be no more war we're saving lives 
by letting a few people, you know, kill themselves. And, uh, and, and, and I'm sure if you were, li- I, and it'd be fascinating to see a story told from the Capitol's point of view. And I think we see that a little with, uh, uh what's her face, the, the PR person who doesn't get it. Well, it's, you deserve this. You deserve to live like that. You know, you, you lost. And, and mm-hmm. I'm sure there was a, you know, just like, well, you don't have the cognitive skills to, to work a high tech job in the capital. That's why you, you mine coal. Uh, or that's why you were in the fishing, you know, I forget which district was the fishing one. Um, so, yeah, I'm sure if you're in the capital, you're just like, I think we, we we saw that for years, you know, well, if you can't get out of in poverty, it's because you're not working hard enough or it's because you're not taking advantage of your opportunities. Well, may, or maybe, you know, you grew up, you were born outside of a, a, a dump in, in, in Guatemala and don't know how to get out. Um, so I think, yeah, so I think there is a blissful ignorance that we probably all deal with, you know, being, being middle-class citizens of the United States. Um, so I think, yeah, but I think there are some dystopian societies that would be quite easy to live in, uh, at the same time, you know, the, yeah, the post-nuclear or post-zombie uh, apocalypse would probably be a little bit tougher. We see those little societies, those little utopias that are carved out, but they always either have a dark side or they don't last very long. Whereas, again, I think you could probably exist just fine at the front of the train or or not putting on the sunglasses and they live or, uh, you know, working a government job in the V for Vendetta uh, uh, autocracy or whatever it was. Um, but, yeah, so I think it depends. But then again, you could be Planet of the Apes and you could be, uh, you know, a slave or you could be in Mad Max trying to to mine what, what little water is left. And uh, that's going to be a rough life. There are two uh, books that I've read that I consider to be dystopian, but I thought they would actually be kind of fun to live in. And it, all of it was based off of how much fun I had reading the world building. So the first one, I don't have, I don't know if you've read, it's a uh, Jason Pargan book. It's Futuristic Violence and Fancy Suits. Have you gotten to that one? I forgot. I'm not, no. Okay. So this one takes place in the future and um, it's the city called Tabula Rasa, which is it looks like it's replaced Vegas. It's now the center of all commerce and activity. It's a nonstop carnival ride. It is considered a dystopian society because of the lack of regulations. So there's rampant crime. There, the influencer in reality TV culture is on crack. And it's a surveillance state because social media has everyone now has live cameras on their glasses, on their person, whatever. And they're constantly streaming themselves for their own uh, motivations, right? Think any sort of live uh, live feature on any of our social media platforms. And as a result, because everyone is constantly streaming 24-7, you've lost your total freedom. And because the algorithms are so strong in this, it's called the Blink Network, that your face can be instantly recognized in other people. Now, if you're in trouble with, the, with, this, with the, the police or you're on the run, it's impossible to hide, and which is the point of the story. So um, one thing I like about it, though, is progress is ridiculously fast and because it's a surveillance state if you mention to your friend when if i go hey brad you know i really wish there was a taco stand right here the next day the taco stand will be there and i'm sure there's a lot there's tons of ethical issues (laughs) i'm sure that there you know it's a very fun fantastical concept but if i was ignorant to whatever shady business had to happen under you know behind the scenes that would be awesome yeah, I mean, and, and I think if you look at that, that's basically just a, and we're getting to the point where it's going to be a mild exaggeration of what we already see. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at it, yes, we're not all streaming, but we're all carrying phones in our pocket. Um, and we are, you know, you mention something and it pops up on your Facebook feed so you can order it. Um, and I'll tell you the craziest one. I just learned how this worked uh, when I worked with you. Uh, we had several people come into our office one day and I noticed one of them worked for a construction company. Okay. And he had a really cool hat. Thought it was cool. Wondered what it was. I didn't know if it was his company's logo. I did not have my laptop with me. I did not have my phone with me. They were at my desk. Within 48 hours, that hat popped up on my Facebook feed to purchase. I, that's I, happened to you a couple times now. I have finally figured it out. Okay. So what happens is sometimes, yes, you go to a site, you're going to get that popped up. You, 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 even if you mention it, what it does is not only triangulates your data, but the data of people with you. So since my phone was in close enough and my Facebook with his, and he obviously probably ordered that hat, 
online, it's going to pop up things. So it's not that you mention it and it pops up, but what probably happened is your coworker or your family member or, or your neighbor mentioned it because they looked it up and your ah, phone okay. is triangulating with their phone. Uh, so in essence, yes, you think it and it happens, but that's what Google and Facebook and all these are doing now. They've gone beyond just taking your search history. They're now commingling your search history with okay. everyone else's, trying to give you even more options. So, you know, you could say, hey, my neighbor has a really cool car in your head, and suddenly you got a Lexus ad. Well, it's because they went to Lexus.com. <laughs> so now you multiple, can feel bad about yourself if you can't afford times. <laughs> So this guy bought this hat, which was just from some actually local you know, company. It, was a, it had a state flag on it of Arizona. And yeah, sure enough, a couple of days later, popped up on my feed, um, which I, again, thought was very strange at the time and was trying to figure it out because I'm like, well, I didn't mention it. I didn't look it up because somehow it's my, reading it, your mind yeah, or did it like, <laughs> did, you know, did my phone reflect it or it, but no, it, what it was, it was his somehow search history and the algorithm picked up that. So, um, so I didn't get a taco stand necessarily right down the street, which would be great. I mean, it would um, be great for employment, too, if you could just yeah. say, I wish there was this, I don't know, 500 person firm, you know, and that'd be really beneficial to us. And then suddenly you can give 500 people a job. But in many ways, we do see that in a weird way, because you got a lot of these people who are Amazon sellers and they are um, eBay sellers. And what happens is these things start popping up on the algorithm and the companies they then order from are like, hey. There's a market for Arizona flag hats in Tucson. Do you want to start selling them for us? And and, and so I think in a weird way, it can be an employment booster, uh, just not in the way we all think. But again, is that really worth the trade-off of, you know, you suddenly not only having your search history used for yeah. marketing purposes, but commingling again with your friends, your neighbors, uh, your frenemies, your enemies. Everyone so then speaking of with. scary potential based off of what we're already seeing. So my second book, okay, so both my books I've mentioned in a, a previous episode uh, from the introduction. So I'm revisiting them now. The first one was Futuristic Violence and Fancy Suits. The second one is called The Body Scout. Uh, this one, I think you really like, Brad, because it's about baseball. <laughs> and it's about a future where GMO and bionic companies have basically dominated the economy and it's reflected in their acquisition of baseball teams. So the Mets is now owned by the Monsanto Mets and people now have access to either GMOs. So chemical alterations to their body to be a really good baseball player or bionic alterations where they can just, you know, I need a new arm literally, and I'm going to go get a metal one. And because Every, you know, in a cap this society where they're both trying to compete to be the top, it's easy to create almost a civil war in the culture over, well, are you a GMO or are you bionic? And um, there's so many disturbing things, right, that you could think of, obviously, with tampering with your body in that way. However, the book explored some really great advancements in health and medical access that I thought were, were really great. And so then with a, with a dystopian society here, and the reason why I consider dystopian is because people have lost aspects of their humanity as they've, as they've turned to modifications for corporate benefit. Um, but at the same time, there's these little glimmers of, oh, th those are really great ideas if we could have just focused on those positives. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think, especially when we talk with this, the science fiction, I think all of the technological advances start out great. I mean, you okay, let's go to one of the greatest dystopian world building ever, the Terminators. I mean, it started as a great idea. We're going to protect everyone with Skynet till Skynet becomes conscious. And I think, you know, you look at the computing power we have in our hand in the cell phone is infinitely more powerful than the biggest computer of the fifties. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, we can do remarkable things. I can drop, pick up a map and show my kids where Ukraine is. Uh, at the same time, I can also, you know, uh, be monitored, be tracked, be, you know, uh, again, become this consumer, uh, target. Um, you know, I can, so there's all different kinds of, you know, it's the same thing. Yeah. A, Having you look at the even if you just go want to go with the bionic, looking what we could we can do now for amputees, but imagine what it's going to be in 10 years. 
Um, I forget at one point I had took a tech class about 15 years ago and he said technology was getting twice as powerful in uh, three quarters of the time. Um, and back then I was still using a flip phone. So look where we're at now, but the, what you could do with those arms, but what, who has control of that arm? Who has the algorithm? Oh yeah. Um, Especially if there's like, if the arm is on Wi-Fi, like smart yeah. devices in your house. Exactly. So does that mean, uh, uncle Fred says something against the government. They make me smack him. I mean, again, again, and that's, and again, that's what dystopian future is. We're taking the far extreme. <laughs> yeah, you um, know, that might be okay. That one situation has yes. humorous. <laughs> but, or does, uh, suddenly my, I'm, a, I'm registered for one party. The other party's in control. Does, do my arms and legs not work on election day? Hmm. So I can't get out and vote. Um, you know, we've seen it even with the GMO stuff that we're ability to grow crops to, to the ability there to feed the world of GMOs, but there's a lot being done now that the nutritional value in our fruits and vegetables is, is next to nothing compared to what it was 30, 40 years ago that through all this tampering, it still tastes good. Sometimes tastes better. Bugs don't eat it, but someone, yeah, I was reading something and I, and I, and I, uh, I read a lot about, you know, small farming and sustainable farming compared to factory farming. And um, so, again, it's a whole nother conspiracy. But there's a lot of people who believe, yeah, you have to eat three times the fruits and vegetables you used to to get the same amount of nutrients. Well, I do think it's really interesting. Like, I realize maybe we don't like bugs as a society, but do we want to eat something that a bug doesn't want to eat? I would think that would be a good indicator of well, what's and, nutritious. And if you're really an environmentalist, um, and, and I'm going to get my soapbox here. Um, do we want the bugs dying so we can't feed the birds who then can't feed the, uh, bigger birds who then can't feed the, the mountain lion? Um, you know, there's, yeah. we always hear about the loss of animal life with, with farming, with, with, uh, animal farming, but what we don't hear is what's happening to the environment from monocrops and big farming, which has become a big business. It's not mom and pop. Uh, the destruction of soil because of some of these crops that shouldn't be grown in places they're growing. Or, um, again, the fact that uh, the soil becomes poisonous, so we don't have earthworms, so we don't have birds. And because we don't have birds, we don't have this animal. Um, there's a lot of issues, especially in a lot of the other countries. Uh, but we're starting to see in America where the whole ecosystem is getting messed up. And it's not because we're, we're killing cows. Uh, it's because we're farming peas for pea protein that shouldn't be grown in, in, in the Midwest or whatever it is. So again, it's great that we can grow these crops cheaper with less pesticides, but less, but there's also the, these trade-offs uh, to the environment and to our personal health. Brad, are we currently in a dystopian society? I, I think it can be one of two things, either a, well, I will say three things. One, we're either in the first five minutes of the movie. Um, I used to do a podcast a long time ago and we used to, do called Apocalypse Watch, and we list off all the things, um, you know, the, the the hurricane season or or the riots or this or that. Um, but if you really want to go into a they live type thing, we, they, we very much could be because of the mind control. Although I would argue this: if you are writing dystopian, and I don't know if that word was around fiction in the 1700s, when you lived in your bustling city of thirty thousand that bustling metropolis and you envisioned cities where there were concrete roads connecting all the cities and there was electric. You could argue that this is the dystopian society for the agrarian society we used to be. So I think it's, you know, I think, yes. I, so yeah, probably in one form or another, we probably are, but what, it depends on your definition. Okay. That's fair. So I have a thought exercise then, which gets, takes us a little bit more into the fantasy realm. So bear with me here. We are suddenly contacted by aliens who turn out to be human. And then we find out Earth was intended to be a prison. And now they're checking to see if we, as a collective society, are ready to rejoin the greater hum humanity. What, what do you think would happen next? So we're Australia. <laughs> <laughs> um, who, again, was a, a penal colony that developed. Um, so I, my guess would be we're not quite ready. Um, again, it depends how advanced that society is, or we're more than ready, uh, depending if they are a peaceful society or if they're a warlike society. Um, My first thought was that we wouldn't believe them and then wage war, and they'd be like, yeah, 
we'll come back later. That 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 very well could be, um, or half of us would believe them, depending on, yes. uh, you know, what their yeah how 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 they believed in other things. But uh, my guess is. Yeah, if they were looking for soldiers, they'd probably sign us right up. If they were looking for people to co peacefully coexist in their utopia, they're, they're probably leaving us here. I think that's fair. I, I, I think going back to what you were saying earlier about how the pandemic showed us how segmented we can become over a simple issue. I feel like if, you, if the current event can be turned into football teams, then it'll get broken down and you're not going to have anyone. Uh, aligned you'll have those pockets of of different discourse you know and it's just i think yeah i think it's interesting because i i think there's really it's not as black and white as i make it out to be but i, I am stunned and again my my main thing is social media but my friends too who completely walk their party's line who completely take all the talking points even if it doesn't affect them or affects them adversely. Um, I have a friend who was a staunch Republican, uh, which I get from a, an economic thing for, for her point of view. Her family has been directly affected by gun violence. Um, staunch supporter of, of the Second Amendment and believes that people should have any kind of gun they want because that's what she hears on her, her, her thing. I have another friend who is diehard, uh, Democrat, who is also a devout Catholic. And if you really look at Catholicism, much of theirs is far more conservative uh, than the Republican Party, but they will walk down every talking point of the Democratic platform, even though morally they're against it, but it's because they've almost been conditioned, well, the Democrats are, are my side. Uh, I, I, I gotta be a Democrat. I gotta be a Democrat. I'm like, really, you're not. You're really... Um, about 75% Republican, about 25% Democrat. Um, but so many people just want to regurgitate those those talking points. And the irony is they say the other side are sheep. Um, I, think, I think there is a lack of discourse, of exploring, of debating, and of frankly finding a consensus. So I think, yeah, if you use the football example, um, in college football especially, I'm a University of Arizona fan, but I'm also a West Coast football fan. But when my team's playing, you know, University of Southern California, I'm against them. But when University of Southern California is playing a team from Georgia, I'm for them. And that's how it really should be. Mm -hmm. You know, we should be like, well, I'm, you know, I am, you know, we should come up with a point scale. It shouldn't be Republican, Democrat, Libertarian. It really should be a continuum, a spectrum. Well, where do you fall on the spectrum? Well, I'm a you know, I'm three points to the left on social issues, but I'm two points to the right on economic. But we don't think that way. We are, well, this talk show host said this, so I believe this. I mean, and just even look at, and then they all flip-flop, and then we tend to flip-flop. And that, to me, is what's, I think, infuriating. Uh, so I think if the aliens came down and said, oh, yeah, we're all devout Christians, well, 50% of the population would go with them. The other 50% were like, they're lying. They're bad, you know, or the opposite, you know. So I think you're right. I think a lot of people would not believe them. But I think if they fell into that fragmented segment of society, they would believe them. Because you want to hear what you want to hear. You want to have your ideas validated. And if the aliens validate your ideas, you're going to go with them. What would you say is your favorite dystopian novel or movie? You know, I'm going to give you a couple from each category because I spent way too much time last night doing it. Mm -hmm. um, for novels... I really go to the Philip K. Dick stuff. Do androids dream of electric sheep and the man in the high castle, um, which are actually a shared universe. One is German controlled East coast. And one is the Japanese controlled West coast. Uh, if you're not familiar, uh, androids uh, do android dream of electric sheep is blade runner. Um, another one I really like is the Vonnegut uh, slaughterhouse five and cat's cradle. Um, and I would also add Swan Song, which is a post-apocalyptic novel by a, a horror writer named Robert McCammon. Those are all great recommendations. I haven't, I will admit, I'm that terrible person that hasn't seen the entirety of the original Blade movie. But I have seen the follow-up with Ryan Gosling. See, I'm, <laughs> I'm the opposite. I, I, I just couldn't bring myself to see the, the sequel. But uh, 
uh, watched Blade Runner a lot as a kid and didn't understand it, and then got into reading Philip K. Dick and went back and revisited. And they, there's quite a few differences, but obviously, but um, Philip K. Dick is, yeah. And you could actually add a scanner darkly to that too, um, which is also another dystopian. He wrote a lot about dystopian futures of one way or another. So he was big on that. Okay. Running Man, um, the Ma whole Mad Max series, and um, Akira, if you really want to get into the anime. Okay. Um, and then finally, I will go with comic books. Batman The Dark Knight Returns, uh, which is Batman in a dystopian Gotham City. He has been retired and comes out of retirement when gangs kind of take over and then the Joker's on the loose. The Watchmen, which is a little bit looser of a dystopian. And then two X-Men stories. One, they made a movie of Days of Future Past. And also Age of Apocalypse. So comic books really shaped a lot of what I what I think of dystopian. Um, so those are, those are my recommendations. I could go on and on to RoboCop or They Live or but I you know I need time for you to actually wrap up here. <laughs> no, you're fine. But that actually uh, reminds me of a, a conversation from a previous episode that's going to come out soon. So I need to know your your answer to this. Who is the more interesting character, Superman or Batman? Oh, you, you know my answer. It's Batman. Um, I agree. Just wanted to hear your thoughts on it. I mean, I have Batman tattooed on my back, so we should go to that. Uh, but, you know, to me, Superman's relatively boring. Um, he's too powerful. Um, he's, think he's just too clean, too cut and dry? Yeah, he's very much a, a Christ figure, really. Whereas Batman is far more interesting, has far more... I think a better world building. I think uh, a richer tapestry of villains, uh, which really kind of can delve into mental health. I, I like Superman. I would love to write Superman because I'd really like to tweak with with the mythos a little bit. Um, I think way too much about this. Really, when I fall asleep, a lot of times I think about that. But to me, Batman's far more interesting character, darker, cooler looking. Uh, he's got the better car. I mean, yeah. So it's 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 all Batman for me. All right. So then I have prepared a series of rapid fire questions that I did not send you ahead of time because I wanted to get, you're already really good at answering things right on, on, right on the spot, but here we go. You ready? Sure. All right. Are you a night writer or a day writer? A night writer. What is For some I thought you meant like, you know, the, the car show and I'm like, uh, <laughs> what's day writer? But I'm much more for writing at night. Well, now I've given you a new story idea. Yes. <laughs> day writer. Uh, favorite type of scene to write? Uh, I have really gotten into like writing, um, out of sequence action scenes where, uh, as I found that my style is later in the book, as the action is coming to, to a, a climax, I write shorter chapters and I jump around. Um, so the character pulls out a gun, but then the next chapter is going to be, well, where do you get the gun? Um, uh, okay, and, I, okay. and I like doing that. So I do like action, although I will say that they're hard to write sometimes, especially with multiple characters. And I will actually bust out my son's action figures and army men and try to uh, figure out where everyone's standing and things like that. That's a good way to go. Currently, I'm writing an action scene and I'm so overwhelmed with all the choreography that I just write action scene. <laughs> and then I go on to the next and I'm like, I don't know. I'm going to figure that out later, but it's going to be later. <laughs> OK, what's a story that you're dying to see out there? Yeah, I kind of like anything where you turn what we know on its head. Um, so, I, I, you know, I think it's hard to say because that's what I want to go like, oh, I wish I thought of that. Um, you know, whether it's so that that's what I would say, where you take the thing we've seen over and over and give me a twist on it. Okay. Um, so case in point, mine's not a huge twist. I, my main character of, of my uh, novels is a 20 something year old detective. Because when I was 20 something, I realized all these detective books I read, they're all grizzled, usually older men, but sometimes women, they all have, they're all alcoholics and they're all divorced and they're all, or they're kids, you know, encyclopedia. Brown. There wasn't at the time a Gen X detective. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to write that. Um, that's what I like. I like when you say, okay, that's a really cool way. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll give you a good example. Uh, baby driver. Um, the getaway driver is usually the throwaway character in the book. Here it was not only the key character, but he had his, his disability. So I thought that was a fascinating take on that type of story. 
if you were a character in a story, which would be worse? To die a brutal death and leave an impact on the story or to fade away into obscurity, but you're alive? What would be better? Fade yeah, well, away. Fade away, probably. Yeah. Okay. You're like, yeah. you know, it's, I don't, really I don't need want... to be a part of the drama. Yeah. No. And I think, again, I, I think that's why in many ways, I think if I was the character in the dystopian novel, I'd be the guy who didn't know what was going on. Uh, or maybe enough. think I did, but not be motivated enough to really. <laughs> You're like, I got a day job. I've got uh, yeah. kids to I, feed. I talk about it when I had a few beers in my system. Did you realize that that screen, that the billboard's watching you? But would I go and spray paint the billboard black to keep it from watching me? No, I probably wouldn't. That's fair. All right. So, Brad, finally, is there anything you'd like to promote? Uh, at this time, no. Like I said, hopefully a, a year from, hopefully I'm going to be where you are pretty soon with an agent and shopping projects. But um, I do have a podcast. It's completely different. It's a University of Arizona sports podcast uh, called the Wildcat Sports Report Podcast. Um, it also, I guess you could find me on uh, Facebook. I do something where I, I chronicle the lives of my children. My kids are adopted, so from foster care. So I wasn't allowed to take pictures and post them as, as little kids. So I do something what I call Reasons I'm a Horrible Father. And it's basically, yeah, someday that will be turned into a book as well. But right now, yeah, unfortunately, I don't have any projects you can go out and purchase. But if you, if you want to hear me uh, my takes on University of Arizona sports or you want to read about uh, my parenting mishaps, uh, uh, search me out. All right. Well, thank you, Brad. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Uh, you are a wealth of knowledge, as always. And I'm really glad that you got to sit down and share your thoughts on this topic. Well, you made me do my research and made me think is, uh, you know, I don't even know if I, again, had a definition for dystopia or even speculative fiction before we started this exercise. <laughs> so I felt like I can branch out. Now I have a list of about 107 books I have to go read uh, sometime in the next, uh, you know, 20 years. Speculative Sandbox is a volunteer-run podcast that relies on the collaboration of fellow creators like yourselves. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter and Instagram. Interested in being in a future episode? Email speculativesandbox at gmail.com.